This Week in Oklahoma Politics is sponsored by Oklahoma State Medical Association, physicians dedicated to providing and increasing access to health care for all Oklahomans. More on its vision and mission at okmed.org. For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel joining me over Zoom video conference. Despite a $700 million incentive package, Volkswagen chooses Canada for its electric vehicle battery plant rather than Oklahoma. Governor Stitt had been working to woo the car company using money left over after failing to get Panasonic to move to the Sooner State. Panasonic opted instead for Kansas. Ryan, what are your thoughts on this news? Well, you know, another one bites the dust for Oklahoma. Uh, you know, this, as, as you mentioned just a moment ago, Michael, uh, you know, this comes right after losing the Panasonic deal. Uh, and, you know, Panasonic at that point, you know, came up with a kind of a, a multitude of excuses for why they didn't select Oklahoma. I don't think any of them really held water. Uh, I think that, you know, the reason that Panasonic didn't choose Oklahoma is probably pretty similar to the reasons that VW didn't choose Oklahoma. Uh, we had an amazing incentive package on the table. Uh, we have, you know, one of the greatest business parks in the country, maybe in, in the world. Uh, you know, there's there's so much that we have to offer, but I've got to think that executives at these companies are looking at the fact that Oklahoma has, you know, very, very extreme limits on uh, women's health care and in particular women, women's reproductive rights. I think that they had to be watching the state legislature so that they were going to begin taking medicine away, not even just preventing uh, treatment for gender dysphoria, but for people that are already undergoing treatment, that they were going to start taking their actual medicine away from them uh, if they're already undergoing treatment. And then, you know, all of that, if that wasn't enough, uh, you know, I think that the executives over the weekend probably felt even better about their decision when that they saw the state legislature couldn't even pass a ban on corporal punishment for disabled students in Oklahoma's public schools. Um, I, I think that, you know, we've you know, I know that a lot of people are sitting around and scratching their heads saying, why aren't folks coming here? Well, when you've got a state superintendent who's declared open war on education and you've got you know all of these other things that are happening in the state. You know, Canada uh, is, is, a, is an alternative. I mean, we live here. This is our home. It's easy for us to stay here. But if you're picking between the two uh, and you're going to be moving a, an enormous workforce, not just hiring folks in Oklahoma, but moving an enormous workforce, that workforce has got to feel welcome in that state. And right now, I think there are a lot of things in Oklahoma that don't roll out the welcome mat for a lot of those workers. Neva. When you talk about, let's get back to what we're talking about in terms of the competition. Um, in 2020, Tesla chose Austin over Tulsa, 2022. We talked about Panasonic choosing uh, DeSoto, Kansas over Pryor, where the uh, industrial park is in Oklahoma. And now Volkswagen uh, choosing uh, Ontario, Canada over, once again, Pryor, the industrial park. Um, I, I think the bigger picture on this that everyone has to remember is the level of competition that we're talking about. When you're, when you're looking at at an industry bringing in the potential of 7,000 new jobs, averaging $75,000 annually, uh, and a $5 billion capital investment um, from the company, uh, the competition is going to be rigorous. And to get to the point where at least we are, and I think should be acknowledged, we're competing in that arena. I mean, when we make the get close to the final cut and we just we make it to the end but don't quite get across the finish line, I think for lawmakers, for the governor, for uh, businesses and industry, uh, it should say there's reason to continue to want to compete. And I think, Ryan, your point about uh, 
the Mid-America Industrial Park uh, is exactly right. I mean, this is the eighth largest in the world. Um, and uh, when you can when you can be in the hunt, when you can be in the competition with these site selection teams from all over the country and now in some cases around the world, uh, this is something that I think these incentive packages that the legislator, legislature has been willing to uh, put together, I think uh, certainly this shouldn't temper that or make them uh, want to move another direction, but uh, stay in the competition because there's no question that uh, that these dollars at some point, if you compete long enough and competitively enough, it's about business. It's about the bottom line. All of the ancillary things that you bring up may it may have some uh, may have some level of an of uh, engagement with some of these folks on the committee, but I'm not sure it's the final decision in terms of making uh, making the choice of here or somewhere else. Governor Sid is declining to allow the shipment of toxic waste from a train derailment in Ohio to come to a landfill facility in northwest Oklahoma. Stitt says there are too many unanswered questions in regard to the amount of waste. However, the Environmental Protection Agency is accusing the governor of playing politics in his denial. Neva, what's really going on here? Well, first of all, I mean, the EPA is probably one of those agencies that is uh, uh, the least liked among federal agencies among most Oklahomans. So I, I don't think that uh, uh, I don't think uh, their idea and the EPA accusing the governor of grandstanding went very far in anybody's estimation of of uh, carrying what was said. I think the bigger question was exactly what the governor said when he made the announcement, and that is that there were too many unanswered questions about the shipment of the hazardous materials. So it, with the with the backdrop of what happened with the train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, earlier this month, and the fact that uh, um, the governor engaged with both the United States senators as well as the congressman from the area where we do have uh, one of those uh, waste uh, disposal facilities uh, in in western Oklahoma I think uh, all parties were engaged and they believed that they did believe that this was the most uh, prudent uh, course for this particular uh, issue with this particular shipment going forward there'll be a lot of other discussions and obviously um you know the fact that in major county in northwestern Oklahoma we do have a facility that uh, that deals with toxic waste storage uh, on a regular basis uh, and have contracts to do so. So um, I think I think this was uh, in, kind of in the eye of the storm. I mean, the EPA under the gun, uh, not wanting this pushback from any state and in, in this instance from the state of Oklahoma. Ryan. Well, these toxic waste landfills, uh, they're, they're not something that are just popping up around the United States right now. They're actually shrinking in number uh, and kind of landfills in general. Uh, it's, it's very difficult to operate a landfill very expensive if you're going to start one you know from scratch right now which i don't think that there's been one uh, started in oklahoma in oklahoma even for the last decade or so uh, you know th these things are incredibly expensive to run um, but they're also very profitable for the state they create a lot of jobs uh, and then they generate a lot in fees uh, i can't find you know new numbers for this clean harbor lone mountain facility up in major county but i saw an oklahoman story that said in, in 2014 that they paid over a million dollars in hazardous waste collection fees uh, and collected, I think, over 750 million or 750,000 uh, tons of um, of hazardous waste. And that was in 2014. Um, this facility is set up just to receive 
the kind of materials that uh, are coming out of East Palestine. Uh, that's, you know, that's just clear. I mean, there are, and they've got rail going in and out of there. They've got truck lines going in and out of there. Uh, they build themselves as a place, bring us your hazardous waste. Uh, now, is, is that really what, you know, we put on our Chamber of Commerce, uh, you know, banner of like, hey, bring it. But the fact it's got to go somewhere and Oklahoma already has this facility. It's already up and running. And the question is, the governor, I, I think, you know, weighed in on this one because it was in the headlines. Um, but, you know, compare and we just don't know this. Right. I don't know this. But if we began to actually compare what was coming into that Lone Mountain facility uh, on a daily basis, maybe a weekly basis versus what came out of uh, or what was going to come out of East Palestine. I'm going to bet that the stuff that's coming in there on a regular basis is as you know, you know, awful as the stuff that was coming or, or worse than was coming out of East Palestine. But it was quiet. It wasn't the result of a something that had national and continues to uh, capture national headlines. Um, and so I I do think that, you know, it's it should not whether it's this governor or any other governor, uh, you know, they should not be you know stepping into the breach and saying yes or no, making decisions on particular shipments of hazardous waste that are otherwise permitted by federal law and welcomed by a private uh, vendor in the state of Oklahoma that's licensed by the federal government and licensed by the State Department of Environmental Quality. You know, I think the only thing that's that's different in this instance, it would appear from what's been said, is the fact that we are talking about uh, the um, uh, the materials, the hazardous uh, chemicals that were involved in the derailment uh, there in uh, in Ohio. And so I think that was the you know, may have been more of the overarching issue than what you say is our regular day-to-day um, possibility in terms of private inter- private businesses who have contracted and are able to deal with toxic waste, or toxic waste on a regular basis. So I think in this instance, uh, the fact that they just kind of sent a 24-hour notice basically and said it's coming to you um, and there was not much it didn't appear to be much additional conversation. I think that may have been the thing that uh, kind of tripped the switch more than the issue that you're saying, Ryan, which I think no one would largely disagree with. And that is that these disposal facilities like the one uh, near Winoka uh, here in Oklahoma uh, are going to continue to to function. They're needed. And um, you're right. I mean, they're, they're certainly not popping up on, uh, you know, uh, all across the country, for all of the reasons that you outlined, but in this instance, I think that there was a bigger issue, and it wasn't so much political grandstanding as is a lack of potential uh, cooperation, maybe, and communication on this on this specific issue. And I guess you know my my only question there is, and I don't know this, right? Uh, you know how much of that cooperation happens on a typical shipment that comes in from out of state, um, and how much notice is the state given? And is the state, you know, typically weighing in? Does the governor ever even see these things uh, typically whenever they're coming into the state? Or is it just something that DEQ is notified of? I, you know, again, I don't know the answers to these questions, but I, I know that this facility is open running and inviting hazardous waste, largely, you know, from Superfund sites around the United States, which those are awful. One of the things that they collect at this facility is they, they dredge the Hudson River, which has, you know, decades and decades and decades of corporate waste. Uh, that have accumulated at the bottom of the Hudson River outside of Manhattan. And then they put it on rail cars and they bring it up to major county. Uh, you know, are, are we saying yes or no to every one of those shipments? I don't think that that's happening. 
No, I, I agree. I don't think that's probably happening either. I mean, I think that'd be a logical conclusion. I think the it, the only caveat here is the fact that we're talking about it being directly tied to an already very explosive issue uh, surrounding this particular derailment. Oklahoma banks are working to reassure customers amid the closures of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank over the weekend. Officials say those banks were unique and were forced to close because of risky investments. Ryan, should Oklahomans be concerned? Yeah, you know, I think that you know, we can say that they were unique in the sense that you know they had uh, among their clientele some some venture capitalists. I mean, were a lot of venture capital firms, uh, a lot of uh, private equity, a lot of uh, kind of you know cryptocurrency uh, uh, customers. You know, some some things that sound a lot of you know kind of on the exotic end of, of the market. Um, and so, you know, to that extent, you know, and they were making, you know, they had a lot of they had a lot of cash coming in, uh, you know, based on those on those deposits. But they also had a lot of cash going out. The one thing that I would say is that it, it doesn't look like the cash going out, though, were being invested in a bunch of risky securities. Most of it were being in, uh, invested in government backed bonds. Uh, the problem with that is that the Fed has lowered interest rates. Um, and so, you know, I, I read on uh, marketplace.org that at the end of last year, uh, there was something like $620 billion in accumulated losses and security portfolios around the entire banking industry. So that's about, you know, you know, 30% of the entire capital and banking industry as a whole. Um, and a lot of that comes from the downturn in the bond market. And so, um, you know, I, I, I think that, you know, we can, we can look at Oklahoma mark, uh, Oklahoma banks and, you know, feel, you know, assured by what's happening. Uh, but at the same time, I know that these banks have got to be taking a look at, you know, their long term investments in bond markets and, and making sure that, you know, their, their investment uh, strategy uh, versus their uh, their lending strategy is, is balanced so that they don't fall into this risk. But this does seem to be isolated to, you know, one or, or two uh, different banks. But it does show how how a bank can get upside down very quickly, uh, because I think that it was, you know, within 24 hours, you had uh, customers at that bank you know, had access to their online accounts and all of a sudden they were shut out and, you know, even showing up at the door trying to get in, security was turning them away and they thought that their investments were safe. Um, so it is, you know, you know, know your bank, uh, you know, understand them. I, I think that's you know one of the great things about local banks is that you can have a, a much greater understanding of what it is that they're up to uh, uh, with with your money and their money. Neva. I, th I think that's right. First of all, I think, you know, community banks, particularly here in Oklahoma, by their own admission, they talk about how they keep a lot of their money sidelined. They don't invest in these uh, uh, these 10 and 20 year um, uh, loans. They they're more likely to do things that are uh, that are local, the small business loans, commercial loans, uh, consumer loans. I mean, th those things that are that are what. Uh, their their customers uh, in these communities uh, need and and want. Uh, uh, so I think in the instance of Silicon Valley and, and the fact that you had a bank that uh, was uh, uh, had concentrated in all of these emerging markets, uh, like you like you said, Ryan. I mean the the tech venture capital, the cryptocurrency. I mean you know these kind of high risk areas uh, um, made made for a very volatile situation, and I think. Uh, you know, one of the one of the articles I read, you know, uh, likened it to the uh, uh, to the the industry, the savings and loan playbook back in the 1980s, you know, where you had the short term funding for long term investments. And that's that that becomes high risk when uh, when it goes sideways. And in, in this instance, I think you had 
two banks. Uh, this is the largest, I think, the largest mm -hmm. bank closure, what, since 2008? Mm -hmm. So it's significant. It has worldwide implications. But I think that what we saw was uh, over one weekend, a very swift move, not only to deal with Silicon Valley Bank, but also Signature Bank in New York, which the uh, FDIC took control of. Uh, for the very same reason, leveraged they were leveraged in very volatile industries, um, cryptocurrency probably being first and foremost, and uh, uh, they had to. Uh, I think they had to get control and uh, allay fears of, of of folks worldwide in terms of could this could this type of uh, bank closures escalate. So, and we all remember those of us who were around in the 80s here in Oklahoma. I mean, it's uh, uh it can be a real deal. And so the instability of that and the ramifications uh have uh, have the ripple effect that go on and on and on, but in this instance I think they have been very clear at what was going on, uh that it was bad business um in terms of how they had uh uh, how they had operated they had what they had at uh, silicon valley was a liquidity crisis and and you know and and when you when you become victim to that your balance sheet really dictates your outcome and it's not a good one and so uh, um i think uh, i i do commend the uh, local uh, community bankers across oklahoma many of whom made statements to their uh, shareholders had made statements to their uh, bank customers and and public statements, uh, basically uh, giving uh, giving them every indication that you don't have to worry here on the home front that um, uh, things uh, things are well and the financial solvency and positioning of these banks is very good. The Oklahoma Veterans Commission moved forward late last week with its firing of VA Executive Director Joel Kinsel. Kinsel was a vocal critic for Governor Stitt and even ran against him in last year's primary election. Kinsel has since called the actions of the board illegal. Neva, what do you think is next in this saga? You know, I don't know. I mean, I think that many felt like that uh, comments uh, a couple of days after the firing of Joel Kinsel indicated that he might... Uh, certainly be looking at litigation, whether that happens or not. Uh, after he was fired, it was interesting. This took place at the Department of Transportation building. The commission met because they couldn't meet at the veterans uh, uh, at the veterans building because they, in essence, had been locked out by the uh, executive director that ultimately they fired. And so I think we talked about this for weeks. It's been an ongoing controversy. I think everyone expected that this would be the ultimate resolution, or at least the next step uh, would, would be the firing. Uh, I think the governor, in concert with the legislat legislature, uh, had talked about how to make this happen to minimize the potential uh, potential for litigation. I think some of that got kind of mucked up, it appears, by uh, the governor making the chairman, you know, moving him kind of out of a questionable position that, that Kinsel had raised, leaving only two uh, in questionable positions based on what's what's been outlined so far. Uh, but one of those folks ultimately uh, voted on the firing. And I think uh, even from r reports that have been um, uh, out there for several days, uh, it did indicate that the governor had suggested that those folks not vote, you know, not vote on the matter just to make it a cleaner deal. So whether that mucks it up, I don't know. Here you have a fire director then and the fire deputy director who uh, there was even more consternation and comment about her 
uh, firing than even Joel Kinsel. I mean, during that meeting after the executive session. So um, it's going to continue to spin. But I think the out of all of this, what has to happen, and I think lawmakers are now beginning to really drill down and focus on, is solve the problems and get the commission working and get the agency working to the benefit of uh, all veterans in Oklahoma. Ryan. Yeah, I think, you know, first and foremost, I, I want to say you know, thanks to Joe Kinsel for his service. Um, it has been a, a difficult tenure at the Department of Veterans Affairs, but, uh, you know, regardless of how folks feel where things have shaken out at this point, uh, I can say that, you know, Joe Kinsel is a man of integrity. He has the, the highest uh, regard for, for ethics. Um, I think that, um, you know, he's, he's a, um, you, know, you know, active duty uh, military service member. Uh, so there's a lot to thank Joe Kinstall for. And I think that he's somebody uh, who has decided to commit his life to public service. And I wouldn't be surprised if we see him serving in some capacity at a future date. Um, the, the, I, you know, I think of like where, where this goes from here. Um, and the attorney general has said that he still believes that the governor's actions and these appointments and not consulting the local uh, veterans organizations as required by law. He believes that the attorney general has stated that he believes that the governor's actions are illegal, uh, but the attorney general hasn't done anything. He said that the legislature might act faster on this than the attorney general even could. We'll see what the legislature does. But the legislature has a couple of things in front of them. Uh, first, they've got legislation by Representative Stegall, who has uh, Representative Stegall has legislation that would um, reduce the governor's appointment power down to two members of the commission. Uh, from I believe it's eight right now that they'd go down from you'd go from eight to two appointed members, um, and then you've got other folks in the legislature that really want to you know move the uh, Veterans Commission you know forward uh, and really get back to its mission. I think chief among those is Representative Josh West, uh, you know a former uh, you know a veteran himself, um, you know Purple Heart uh, recipient. You know he has said that he is tired and I'll, we're on the radio, uh, but so I'll say. He said he is tired of the BS um, and he didn't say BS, uh, but he's 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 very much tired of the BS. And he's, you know, folks, he's like, I don't care. I don't care about all of this drama. You know, we've got a, We've got a mission that we've got to accomplish. Um, and I think you know, as chair of the uh, Veterans Affairs Committee uh, and as a veteran himself, you know, he's probably going to play a very active role in the legislature moving forward. And then finally, the Senate still has confirmation. Uh, that they've uh, they've got the confirmation power over these appointees, uh, yeah. So we'll see that uh, you know at some point, uh, presumably before the end of May, uh, we'll see the Senate act on these confirmations. I don't know what that's going to look like, um, but and you know the I think that you know right now uh, you know, the ability of uh, of Joel Kinsel to challenge this himself uh, seems pretty low uh, in terms of the the court be, being willing to take this up. Uh, it's most certainly that the attorney general, if there's going to be litigation beyond this, that the attorney general would take that up. Um, and then, you know, but again, that probably won't happen until the legislature is done in May. Uh, and then if he did bring that case and they decided that this firing uh, and then the subsequent hiring were were invalid, uh, you know, then we might be back at square one in terms of, you know, what what happens next. I think it's important to know, too. I mean, we talked about uh, the firing. There also was action in that same meeting. It was a 5-0 vote with, I think, one abstention. Uh, the commission voted to hire 
uh, former Navy undersecretary, uh, Greg Sylvanic, as the interim director. So they put someone immediately in at the helm, uh, certainly uh, a fairly recognizable figure in uh, many uh, veteran circles and certainly in, in military circles, uh, given his past involvement. Um, and um, uh, so I think that uh, I think that that was an important step in addition to all of the other actions that were taken at that meeting. And now we'll see how they begin to tackle all of the issues, like you say, Ryan. I mean, there's some big issues. I mean, they've got to get the legislature uh, to basically look at probably a 20 to 25 million dollar additional appropriation to finish the Veterans Center at Salisaw, given the overruns that are there and the mess that that is, in addition to many of the other big issues that are uh, that are on the uh, burner for them to take a look at. Well, you know, the legislature's got 700 million more dollars that they get to spend now because we didn't get the VW deal. Uh, you know, I think out of that $700 million, I bet that there's going to be a bipartisan agreement in the legislature that finishing that Veterans Center and the overruns there and getting that operational, that that's going to be one of the priority appropriations out of that $700 million additional dollars that we've I got. I think they'll probably appropriate. I'm not sure it'll be out of that $700 million because I think the sticking point on those dollars is that uh, there's a strong feeling uh, kind of across the board, it appears, that those should be one-time uh, one time dollars spent on projects so that you're not encumbering uh, future budgets uh, with recurring costs. So, and obviously the Veterans Center, I think the Veterans Center will be taken care of, and I think it certainly needs to be without question. Um, and the good news is we're not in a budget crunch. We're in a place where they can actually uh, get some things done and have the money to do it with. The State Department of Education has fired the organizer of the Teacher of the Year ceremony. The release of Stormy Honeysuckle came just days after what would be considered a debacle of a show where Superintendent Ryan Walters arrived an hour late and committed several gaffes. Honeysuckle says the situation in the office is tense. Other former De Department of Education workers are calling the agency toxic under Walters' leadership. Ryan, what must Walters do to turn this department around? Boy, the, the list gets longer by the week uh, because, you know, if this guy is good at anything, he's good at, you know, digging himself deeper in a hole. Uh, you know, he's he's got a golden shovel, uh, you know, so so he's good at that, folks. Uh, but, you know, maybe maybe send him up to uh, to the Lone Mountain uh, you know, waste reserve, a uh, toxic waste place up there. He can help out with that because he's he's great at digging himself into these holes. He shows up at this event and I encourage folks, if you haven't seen it yet, you know, there, there's video. Uh, yeah, I think you can see it on the Lost Ogle. Go go watch the video of the secretary showing up to this event, um, not because, you know, it's, you know, schadenfreude and we want to you know feel you know good about you know watching him fail. But because I think that it's it's really uh, representative of what we've seen out of his administration. So so, so far, uh, you know, being unprepared and bumbling his way through it. People in his office, uh, anonymous uh, sources within his office uh, that were speaking, uh, I believe, to the Oklahoman, said that they don't even they're not even sure the chief of staff is there. Um, that's really incredible uh, that you don't know who the chief of staff. If you're if you're an employee within an agency and you don't know who the chief of staff is, I mean, Gettner Drummond, by comparison, and I, I use him because he's another statewide elected official who's brand new to the job. I mean, he came in. I think he had his chief of staff name before he was even sworn in. Uh, you know, that's that's the difference. Um, so, you know, this this idea that well, we're going to run it like a private business, private businesses do not run like this. I promise you, folks. Uh, and if they do, uh, they're not going to stick around for very long. Um, even the Oklahoman recently this week, I had an editorial in their op ed page 
um, you know, from the from the Oklahoma editorial board uh, that said that Walters needs to either stop with the rhetoric or he should resign. That's that's powerful uh, to, to be, a, you know, just months into your administration uh, and have one of the more powerful editorial boards in the state uh, saying either, you know, step it up or step down. Um, I don't think he's going to step down, uh, but let's let's hope he steps it up for the sake of Oklahoma students and teachers. Neva. Absolutely. And I think, you know, we've got two things going on here. One, the editorial, clearly, I agree with you, Ryan, uh, would make anyone pause and reflect on, on what was said. I mean, it was very it was very strong. It was very uh, well thought out. And I think uh, it, it raised a lot of the questions that continue to be raised uh uh, over and over again uh, by folks across the board in education in in the at the state capitol everywhere i mean and we can't dispute the fact i mean when oklahoma ranks 45th in education it is a topic that is that must be front and center in the conversation and i think the fact that as they pointed out in that editorial when you have 74% of oklahoma's 8th graders that are not prov- proficient in either math or reading I mean, those are the issues that have got to be talked about, got to be addressed. And the uh, the the secretary, uh, the cabinet secretary for education or the uh, the superintendent of the State Department of Education, that's the face that needs to be front and center, having a thoughtful conversation and exploring real options. Instead, as that editorial indicated, you had once again a uh, a late night uh, weekend tweet uh, that uh, went viral. In fact, I saw even in the Huff Post uh, uh, just uh, uh, just light this week uh, them talking about what they headlined as a bizarre twist or a bizarre tweet um, uh, coming from the what they described as the education czar. So uh, these are continue to be the kind of headlines and conversations we don't need. And then inside the State Department, I mean, the question that you started out with, Michael, about the fact that uh, that this firing took place two days after that uh, after that planned event, and we're talking about an employee. We don't know the circumstances. We don't know all of what what has gone on or not gone on. But it is noteworthy that you had an employee that had worked at the agency for 15 years under four state superintendents. So again, that should give, I mean, that does at least give pause that this was not someone who had, you know, just been there for a short time, might not have known all of the ropes or whatever. And so uh, again, that begins to uh, have a spiraling effect inside the uh, inside the state education department when you have these types of firings. Um, and we'll just have to see if this is the beginning of many more or whether uh, we can see Ryan Walters really stabilize the place, bring some people in that are, you know, that he has every right, as I always say. I mean, these elected officials, it's their prerogative. Bring your team in, do the job. As Ryan has said about uh, uh, yep, the attorney that's right. general, bring your team in, do the job, and then you will be scrutinized and you will be given the scorecard accordingly. But that's the, that's the nature of what uh, the operation is all about. So, um, I think it's regrettable that we can't uh, have more positive headlines or more positive uh, issues being brought to the forefront for conversation at the Department of Ed than what we're seeing right now. And hopefully that'll change and change quickly well before the end of this session so we can see some positive outcomes. 
Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at donate.kosu.org. This Week in Oklahoma Politics is sponsored by Oklahoma State Medical Association, physicians dedicated to providing and increasing access to health care for all Oklahomans. More on its vision and mission at okmed.org.